how are you all doing out there? You know, it's really been interesting. We've been trying to stay in touch. As Frank said, we're staying in touch with the, uh, with the uh, online video conferencing on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and that's been great. You get to see into everybody's houses, see their rooms, see what they got hanging on the walls, and we get to see their faces and hear their voices. Um, Jeanette's been logging in from Georgia, so it's been great to see her. We have couples logging in from Phoenix who have followed the effect from afar, and now they're able to actually connect with us and talk with us. That's been great. We have someone from Ventura who's been logging in. So it's been really great to just build our community up, and now we're trying to figure out how do we keep that online portion even when we come back to face-to-face gatherings. But obviously there's been good within all the craziness, but it has dawned on me that we're only in week three of this. And uh, now we know that we're going to the end of the month at least. And uh, a lot of the people I've been talking to said, you know, it's probably going to be longer than that. So it's going to really require a shift in attitude. And as, as good-natured and humored as pretty much we've all been able to be, you can feel that, that other thing rising there. And so it's so important for us to keep connected uh, with each other and with our own interconnection with God so that we can balance all of this and we can keep moving forward. It, it's just kind of amazing to me that we're already into Holy Week. Here we are with Palm Sunday. I'm sure you can see our palms down here. Obviously, we forgot to light the candles, but that's okay. And uh, <laughs> a couple of you have been asking me, about, uh, you know, obviously there's a few people here, and are we safe? And yes, we're practicing our social distancing, and uh, we're doing everything we can to be safe, but we're, we're all very glad to be here so that we can stream out and be with you on Sunday morning. So here we are with Palm Sunday, beginning of Holy Week. Um, we have talked, we, I've sort of got uh, some traditional um, services and messages that I do on Easter and Good Friday and Christmas, and and it's becoming kind of a tradition for us. And so um, the Holy Week tradition that we've had, that we're just getting started now because this is Palm Sunday, is to send um, daily devotionals by email, and we'll do it on Facebook as well this year. And uh, hopefully you will have seen the one that we did for Palm Sunday. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to get them by email, just just uh, let me know and we'll get you on. But each one of these days of Holy Week takes another little slice of scripture, another small story, and threads it through Holy Week, uh, and commemorating and detailing this last week um, but leading up to the crucifixion. And we talk about how normally we just take these stories at a literal sort of face value. Uh, we look at the, what the story actually says, we read the story, we absorb it, and then we move on to the next day. But scripture has this wonderful ability to give us layers of meaning. And if we stick only to the literal, top-level meaning, we're going to miss so much because Without saying that these are just metaphorical, there is so much deeper spiritual and metaphorical meaning layered in. And when you take a look at the actual choices of the material that was laid out liturgically on Holy Week, you get a sense of this progression. Really what's happening when we take a look seriously at Holy Week, we are seeing 
the whole way of Jesus being laid out, this way of Jesus uh, that, that is the only way to the Father, this way of Jesus that, that Jesus told us he actually is. He is this way. He is living this way. He is trying to model and teach this way that will get us to this place of transformation, this place of rebirth. And so Easter week, Holy Week, takes us right up to Easter and that celebration of, of new life and rebirth. And each day takes us on one step of the journey. For instance, let's just go really quickly through. On Palm Sunday, we are, cel- we are actually celebrating and remembering Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the last week of his life. And the people go crazy and they give him all of these accolades. But really what's happening there under the surface is that Palm Sunday is all about seeing through our expectations, our agenda, our needs, our ego, if you will, to a truth that stands beyond that, to break through what we think we know. Because all the people saw Jesus as he came through the city through their own lenses, through everything that they thought they knew, and most most importantly, what they needed and wanted from Jesus. They weren't seeing Jesus as he was. They were seeing him as they needed and wanted him to be. To break through that is the message of Palm Sunday. Tomorrow, Fig Monday takes its name from Jesus cursing the fig tree, which is a really strange story. Why would Jesus curse a fig tree? Because it didn't have any fruit at the moment. But when you realize that it's juxtaposed with the cleansing of the temple, then everything starts to come into focus. Because both the temple and the fig tree were symbols of Israel itself. And what Jesus is showing is that the whole institution of Judaism, the whole institution that Israel was founded upon, had become hollow, had become corrupt, was not bearing any fruit. And so Fig Monday is about breaking through the institutional or the group identification that we sometimes fall back on. Palm Sunday, breaking through the individual ego. Fig Monday, breaking through the group identification that can also hold us down. Holy Tuesday tells us the story of the the wise and the foolish young girls as they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and take the bride away. And some have their lamps ready and trimmed and full of oil, and others do not. And it's about staying prepared. It's about staying ready. But there's also this sense of trying to stay balanced between the here and the now and the future. It is such a delicate balance for us to try to stay in that place. And some of them can do it, and some of them can't. To be simply focused on the present with no preparation for the future leaves us out in the cold, as the the foolish young girls found. But the opposite is also an unhealthy place to be, trying to show us that we need to stay balanced, completely focused, completely present here, but also aware of new life, aware of what's coming next, preparing for what's coming next but not at the expense of what's happening now. On Spy Wednesday, which takes its name from Judas conspiring with the the, uh, Jewish authorities to uh, betray Jesus and to give him up, but it's also juxtaposed with another story, which is a story of the woman who comes and pours expensive, crazily expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And Judas leads the band from the disciples' point of view and saying, why have you wasted all of this? Why wasn't this money saved and given to the poor? And Jesus comes right back 
to Judas and the followers and says, leave her alone. You're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. And this is, again, one of those stories that seems so uncharacteristic. What's really going on here? But when you think about it, this is another balance. The story on Holy Tuesday is about balance between now and then, between present and future. This is about balance between micro and macro, between getting lost in external causes and being able to focus right down on who's right in front of you. This is a call to balance what we need to do for the good of the group without sacrificing our intimacy, without sacrificing what, what connection is required, what love requires right here and right now two very different disciplines, but we need them both, and we need them in balance. Monday, Thursday tells a story of Last Supper, the day before the crucifixion, and a lot of things happen in the Last Supper. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, strips down, and takes this subservient, humble, but, but also despised position in his culture to wash all his disciples' feet. He institutes communion, the Eucharist. And he also gives the new commandment, which is what Monday, how Monday Thursday gets his name, the mandatum novum in, in uh, Latin. The new commandment, he says, that he gives just simply to love each other as I have loved you. He's showing his disciples this breakthrough into complete unity to erase the cultural and supposed statuses between master and, and follower, between master and slave, between higher-ups and, and anyone else. Everyone is equal. Everyone is of service. Everyone is connected, as the Eucharist implies, by taking into ourselves all that Jesus is, and then loving as he has loved. A breakthrough into unity. And then, of course, Good Friday, the crucifixion, is about surrender. It's about laying everything down. It's about consummation. It's about fulfilling the journey. Holy Saturday, the time that he spends in the tomb, is about silence. It's about rest. It's about the quiet right before the breakthrough into new life that is Easter Sunday, the rebirth, the resurrection. If you take a look at those seven days, you take a look at Holy Week, each one of those is laying out a step on this journey. This way of Jesus is laid out in, in, in micro form right here in the liturgy, in the selections that were made of the New Testament stories of this week. And it's an amazing thing. All of that is there if we will take a little bit of a look beneath the surface. So now let's back up, because today is Palm Sunday. This is the first day of the Holy Week. And let's take a look at Palm Sunday. It's, it's that iconic Christian scene. Jesus riding in, the people celebrating, going crazy in the crowd, and uh, you have the Romans and the uh, temple authorities and the Pharisees looking down uh, you know, suspiciously, and, and uh, all of the intrigue, all of the conflict that's implied in this story, it's all here. It's always been called the triumphal entry. Let's take a read and see why it would be called that. Pretty obvious, that Matthew 21, starting right at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Sion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So certainly that sounds triumphant. I mean, the people are treating Jesus like a conquering hero, like a returning king who has come from from battle and is victorious. And there's a lot of symbolism here. This is rich in symbolism. Once we know the symbolism, we kind of can move into the scene a little bit more and know what's really going on here. It says that the peoples laid their cloaks before him. They laid their cloaks, the followers laid their cloaks over the colt of, of the donkey, and Jesus sits on the cloaks, and then the donkey and Jesus are walking over the cloaks of the people. You know, basically it's red carpet surface. This is, this is their way of paving the way for their conquering hero. It's showing reverence. It's showing submission to lay your cloak before. And then they're cutting down the palm fronds, and they're waving the palm fronds, and they're throwing those on the road as well. And palm fronds in the ancient world, pretty much universally, were symbols of triumph. They were symbols of celebration. They were symbols of reverence. And especially the date palm in Israel was a symbol of peace and prosperity. And these palm fronds have all of that meaning as they are waving them and they are laying them down before Jesus. And the word that they're saying there, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now we have just kind of taken that word, that phrase colloquially, just to think that it just means praise you or praise God or something, but that's hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise God. Hosanna, actually, if you take a look at Psalm 118, is where it is, it's laid out. The actual word there in Hebrew is hoshiana, and the whole phrase in Psalm 118 is hoshiana anayave, which means, save us, we beseech you, Lord God. Save us, we beseech you. Hoshiana, save us. What they are looking for in Jesus is this Messiah, this Mashiach, this Savior. They're looking to be saved from something. Everybody wants to be saved from something that they fear. And they're looking for Jesus for this salvation. When you read it in the English, it doesn't look like that. And some commentators have said that over time, the meaning changed from save us, we beseech you, to just salvation, exclamation point. We are saved. Or or, thank you for saving us. Both of these ideas are congruent with what's going on in the people's minds and hearts. They are looking for Jesus to save them. They are looking for him in this role of Messiah, which was very well understood by this time in Jewish history. After 400 years of being under foreign rule and and occupation and oppression, they were looking for a warrior king who was going to, at this point, throw off the yoke of the Romans and take them back into national sovereignty. And the glory that they expected was their promise from all the way from Abraham and the promises to Abraham to their present time. The cloaks, the palm fronds, the, sa- the, the, the cries for salvation, 
But there's something else here too. There is the prophecy that was alluded to. And it's Zechariah 9.9. 9, that, uh, that, that's probably, if you're reading along in your books, it would be in all capitals. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so here comes Jesus on a donkey. If a king rode into your city on a horse, look out. That's a war horse. The king is coming in in that military mode. But if a king rides into your city on a donkey, that meant peace. But Jesus rides in, and the prophecy was saying that he rides in on the foal, the colt of a donkey, even a lesser of an animal. This is the ultimate in humility. This is the ultimate in, in coming in a way that the people did not expect and frankly didn't want. They wanted the war horse. They wanted the Messiah that was going to build an army and create national sovereignty. And here comes Jesus. There is a foreshadowing here of who Jesus really is and the real intent of his mission. And the people are missing it completely. But this is Jesus' big point. This is Jesus' big idea. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Really, his whole ministry, his whole public life, he's trying to get this point across to the people. And it is so difficult for them. It's so difficult for us. We really don't want to see it. But this is why, if you look at Jesus' attitude toward this occasion in his life, he doesn't look at Palm Sunday as a triumph. He looks at it as a tragedy. A tragedy. Why would he say that? After everything that you've just heard about his re-entry into Jerusalem, why would he see it as a tragedy? Well, let's take a look at Luke. Chapter 19, starting at verse 41. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And he said, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Think about what he's saying there. If you had known, this is, this is a city as a collective and all the people in it. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. The people wanted what they wanted to create a sovereign nation. The people wanted what they wanted to not be oppressed. They wanted what they wanted so they could prosper personally and, and as a family and as a nation. But Jesus is saying, if you had just known the things that really make for peace, not the things that you think can be taken by force, but the things that really make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up barricades against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's devastating. He is saying here everything that actually happened 40 years later in 70 AD when the Romans rolled in and raised the city to the ground and destroyed the temple and left not a stone upon another. Because they didn't know the things that really make for peace and they did not recognize the hour of their visitation. That's the tragedy. The 
people didn't recognize what was right in front of them. They didn't recognize what Jesus was bringing. They didn't recognize the hour of their visitation. They missed this opportunity to see something that was radically different right in front of them, right before their eyes, radically different in their lives, something that could actually transform them, transform their nation, bring the peace that they sought, but in a way that they didn't expect. They missed the opportunity because they saw only what they wanted to see. They saw only what their fear allowed them to see. And think about that. Our fear limits our ability to see always. Fear does that. Fear narrows our, our, our sight down to this myopic pinhole that we can only see what we think is our salvation, and we cry out for that salvation. We look for that salvation. And the tragedy for these people, what they were looking for was that warrior king, the exact warrior king who led them into conflict with Rome. It kept them on the course of their own destruction. Jesus pounded this point over and over and over again his entire ministry. He was using phrases and words that make so little sense on the face of it, when you, but when you put it into this context, you see what he's saying. He's saying that you, if you want to follow me, you have to sell everything. You have to let go of everything that you're clinging to, everything that you're looking to for support. He said if you want to find your life, you've got to lose your life. He said, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily. All of these images that are so counterintuitive, so paradoxical, seem like they're going in the exact opposite direction. When the people asked him for a sign, he said, you're not going to get one except the sign of Jonah, which is what? To go into the belly of the beast, to go into oblivion, so that you can come out the other side. Jesus is constantly trying to get us to see that if we want the things that make for peace, if we want to be transformed, then we're going to have to see through all of our own personal agendas, our desires, expectations, our compulsions, all the things that the ego dictates for us in order to see the truth of the moment that is right in front of us right now. And this is the significance of Palm Sunday. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. Seeing through all of that filter, seeing through all of that egoic haze, seeing through all of the, the fear that, that narrows down our focus so that we can see the truth of things, so that we can see things as they really are. And what is that truth? <laughs> what is the truth that Jesus is trying to get across to us? that our God is not who we imagine him to be. That our God, who is really bringing us the things that make for peace, is not bringing them in any way that we would recognize or that we would even revere so often. We want this big, strong ruler. We want this, this mighty man coming in on the war horse. And here comes Jesus on the foal of a colt, telling us that our God is a humble God. Our God is unassuming. Our God is a God that we would walk right past as we're looking for our Savior. Unseen at the heart of life and yet completely present at the same time. Are we ready to accept that? 
Are we ready to accept the kind of God that Jesus is really bringing to us? Are we willing to accept who Jesus is showing us that he is as he rides into our lives? You know, we've done this before, but for just a second, just close your eyes. Picture yourself anywhere. Maybe you're at the beach. Maybe you imagine yourself in a street in Jerusalem in the first century, and Jesus is walking toward you. You know it's Jesus. What does he look like? How tall is he? What is he wearing? What are the color of his eyes? Hair? Length? What are his features? Who is this Jesus that is walking towards you? Each one of us has an image. Culturally, individually, we all have an image of who Jesus is. And by and large, he's an imposing figure. He's a tall figure. He's larger than life. He's beautiful. All of these things that we imagine because this is the way that we imagine our God. And we've talked about this in here before. The average Judean man, Galilean man in the first century, would have probably been around five foot one, weighed 135 pounds, was dark skinned, with close cropped hair, close cropped beard, very stout, muscular, nothing like we would ever imagine. How do we know that Jesus was average? There are recessive genes, after all, you know. Could Jesus have been completely different than that? Yeah, absolutely, of course he could. But then why would they need to hire Judas to point him out from the crowd because they couldn't find him because he blended in so well with everyone else? The clues are there. Isaiah 53 tells us that there is no beauty, there is no attractiveness in the Savior, that we would be attracted to him. There are all the clues that we need from Jesus himself and all of Scripture that tell us that we're looking in the wrong spot when we're looking for this huge, spectacular God. He is huge and spectacular, but in a humble and unassuming way. And this is the, the counterpoint. This is the paradox. This is, is the, the, the almost dissociation that Jesus is trying to get across to us. To say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what I'm showing you right now is I wash your feet. What I show you right now is I serve you. What I show you right now is I voluntarily give up my life in an ignominious death, the most horrible death you can imagine. It's what your Father in Heaven is all about. What your Father in Heaven actually does for you. Could you accept a Jesus like that? Or would you walk on by looking for the Jesus that you expect? When Jesus rides into your life, and he rides in every single day and every single moment, are you missing the hour of your visitation? Or are you ready to see what is really going on here? And if we do that mental exercise for ourselves and realize how difficult this really is, maybe we can start to give these first century Jews a bit of a break here because usually we're saying, how in the world did they miss this? If I had been there, I would have known, right? Of course. As long as Jesus was six foot two with blue eyes and long, you know, golden hair. But if he comes in other than we expect, we're in the same position. Why did these people miss the hour of their visitation? Because they were blinded by their expectation. They are blinded by their desire, blinded by their need, and their need was real. 
It's not that their need wasn't real, but they were blinded by it. There were four main groups that were approaching Jesus that day, or Jesus was approaching them as he rode in. And each one of them was looking at Jesus from a separate point of view. The people themselves, just the people in general, not the ones that were following Jesus, but the people, and especially the zealots, those are the people who are now the, the, the terrorists of their day. They were called Sicarii in, in, in Latin, which was the dagger that they used for their assassinations. That's how they characterized these, these zealots. The Kanaim in Aramaic just meant the zealous ones, but they were the, the terrorists of their day, trying to foment rebellion, trying to foment destabilization. And they were looking for a warrior king. They were looking for that Mashiach who would reestablish a sovereign Israel. And they wanted to be saved from, they were looking for salvation from Roman oppression, from everything that was keeping their lives down, from the crushing taxes and everything that was going on. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of, of uh, the Jewish institution, they saw Jesus as a threat to their power base. He was a threat to the law and especially the oral tradition that the Pharisees controlled. He was a threat to the temple system. He had just overturned the tables and had spoken against the corruption there. He was a threat to the Roman allegiance that kept this fragile alliance alive. He was a threat to all of that. And that's how they saw him. The Romans also saw him as a threat, but he was a threat in a more general way. He was a threat to the stability of the region. He was a threat of sedition, of riots and, and further unrest, and especially to the Romans, he was a threat to the tax base, the constant flow of taxes to the capital. And the followers of Jesus, they're not exempt here either. <clears throat> they looked at Jesus as what? They looked at him as a ticket to the big time. They still hadn't gotten into their hearts what Jesus was talking about when he talked about his kingdom. They were still thinking of it as a physical kingdom. In the chapter right before the one that we're focused on here, there is a story of the mother of James and John going to Jesus to lobby <laughs> for her sons so that they could sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left hand, the positions of honor and power when he came into his kingdom. And you can just see Jesus shaking his head. Oh my gosh. And of course, that creates this huge problem within the followers because the rest of them are incensed that they would try to be getting these positions of authority. But right up to the moment of the crucifixion and beyond the crucifixion, they still didn't get it. They saw themselves as following Jesus, paying their dues, so that when he finally did come into political power, they could have their boats all floated along with his, riding his coattails. And they wanted to be saved from what? From anonymity, from the marginalization and the oppression. Jesus' followers, by and large, were very poor, very marginalized people, and this was their chance to finally rise above that. We can understand. It's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with that, but they missed the hour of their visitation. They missed the connection. They missed what Jesus was trying to get across to them because Jesus was none of these things, and he still isn't. What do we see in Jesus? What do we expect Jesus to be here and now? What do we want from Jesus? Jesus has this maddening ability 
to always be something other than what we expect. Have you noticed that? He's like a, a quantum particle, you know, one of those little hadrons or gluons or, or one of those little quarks. You know, you can't know both the velocity and the, the direction of these little buggers. You know, you, you pin one down and the other one goes out. So you can never know exactly where they are. And the more you try to understand, the more there's someplace else. Jesus has that sort of quality to him. You ask him a question and he just asks you a question back or he tells you a story. He's always trying to get you to look in a different direction than where you're looking to let go of the thing that you're holding on to that drove the question in the first place. He is always something radically different. Radically different. Jesus will always come in and overturn your tables the way he did in the temple. Whatever tables of familiarity you have, whatever tables of, of commerce and transaction that you've set up in your life, he will overturn those and he never leaves us unchanged. The real Jesus comes into your life and you recognize him, he will not leave you unchanged. He can't leave you unchanged because he is so radically different. Jesus doesn't ride into our lives to give us what we think we want. He doesn't work that way. What do we want right now? We really want this outbreak to be over, don't we? We really want to get back to work, don't we? We want to be able to congregate again. We want to feel safe again. We want the grocery shelves to be full again. We want everything back the way it was. And we want that so bad, we're praying for it. And we're praying for God, for Jesus, to fix it, to save us. But what's the truth? The truth is we're going to have to fix it for ourselves. We're going to be on lockdown for another 30 or 60 days, maybe even longer. There's going to be all the things that we're going to have to fix afterwards. This is up to us to fix because when it comes right down to it, Jesus is much less concerned with our circumstances than he is with the transformation of each one of us through our circumstances. To take us into rebirth, into transformation, that is Jesus' concern. Not the circumstances in which we find ourselves and here's the catch. If we like our circumstances, if we are invested in our circumstances, if we like the status quo, right, then we're going to be afraid of change. Why would you want anything to change if everything is just the way you want it, right? Why do you think Jesus' followers were all from the poor, were all from the marginalized? The ones who were completely happy with the status quo. We're afraid of that change and they will see Jesus, we will see Jesus as a threat to everything that we have. We don't want to change. Even if somewhere in the back of our spirits we know that it's got to be better, but there's too much inertia, too much resistance, too much fear. On the other hand, if we're not happy with our circumstances, if we are marginalized, then we're afraid of not changing. And then we're going to see Jesus as the fixer, as the one who's going to come in and change all of that. And the truth is, Jesus is neither threat nor fixer. What is Jesus really? He's a window into a different reality. He's a window to the Father himself. In that reality that Jesus is trying to show us, the kingdom, Father, can fix what 
can be fixed when we are in that reality. It gives us the ability to fix what can be fixed, but it also gives us the, re- the ability to be faithfully enduring, to overcome what can't be fixed. And that's a very different thing. To ask Jesus, to ask the Father to be the fixer, to come and just fix everything, when really what is happening is when we enter into that connection with Father, with kingdom, we have the ability to fix what can be fixed, but also to endure what can't. That's a very different thing. A very different thing. And this is what Jesus is trying to show us. He's showing us what this reality looks like. It's here. Here is this new there there that you can go into if you want to. And what does that look like? Take a look, just jumping back a little bit in Luke to verse 37, still chapter 19. As soon as Jesus was approaching, approaching Jerusalem, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if, this, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You got to love that. Maybe more poetically said from Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, if every tongue were still, the noise would still continue. The rocks and stones themselves would start to sing. Such a great line. What does that mean? What does it mean that the stones will cry out? What's Jesus trying to show us here? He's coming into the city. The people are going nuts. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are petrified that the Romans are going to see this as the beginning of a riot and put it down with force. Shut them up. Stop them. Tell them not to make this kind of noise, to make this kind of show. He says, even if they do stop, the stones are going to cry out. What's he telling us? He's telling us that God, his Father, is infused in everything around us all of creation, that there's no way that we can escape God's presence. It precedes us wherever we go. It is wherever we go. And that everything around us is unceasingly expressing that truth, that presence. It can't do anything else. The stones are singing right now. All here, all now, all the time. Creation is constantly singing nature is constantly singing and showing us a truth if we're willing to see, to look where we're not used to looking. Jesus is telling us we can join the symphony if we want to. We can join the celebration if we want to. Just like the elder brother of the prodigal, you can come on into the party if you want to, or you can stand outside. But whether you join or whether you don't, the party goes on. The music continues The celebration continues. It can't do anything but that because it's infused with God's presence. It continues unabated regardless of what we do, regardless of what we don't do. It is just there for us. A couple months ago, I told you the story of my my favorite science fiction novel when I was a kid. Uh, It's a story of, of... basically surrounding a desert planet that is is so dry that it never rains, 
and water is so scarce that the people who live there have built a whole culture around water. Their politics revolve around water. Their religion revolves around water. Their day-to-day activities, everything revolves around water. They have to wear special suits that recycle their breath, recycle their sweat, recycle all of their body fluids, and, and so they can drink it again, and it constantly recirculates. And the only water that they have is gotten from little moisture traps that catch a little bit of dew in the morning, a little bit of mist, and they guard it jealously. And their whole life is built around the fact that there is no water. And how do we survive in such an environment? It's never far from their minds. Water is always at the, right at the forefront because it has to be. To forget about it for just an instant is a death sentence if you aren't careful, if you aren't constantly planning for it, constantly aware of it. And in the course of the story, two people are injected into one of the tribes and they come from a planet that's like ours. And at one point in the story, the woman says to the group, says, I come from a planet where water falls from the skies. It runs in wide rivers and in oceans. And there is this collective sigh and gasp from the whole room where they're trying to imagine what it would be like to step off a starship into a planet where water is falling from the sky. That you can drink it whenever you want. That you can shower in it. That you can bathe in it. That you can swim in it. Could you imagine what that would be like if all your life... You had lived with such scarcity that you couldn't even imagine that kind of abundance. See, what Jesus is trying to tell us is that we're like those desert people. There is this abundance. There is this constant outpouring. The rocks are infused with the song of God. It's all here. It's all now. It's all the time. And yet we're living as if it is so scarce a commodity that we have to plan for it, we have to hoard it. It is a complete reversal. Jesus is trying to get us to approach life in this different way. We're in a scarce mentality, scarcity mentality right now with this outbreak, aren't we? I mean, look at our grocery shelves. They're empty. We're hoarding things. We're trying to make sure that we have enough for our family. What's going to happen when this passes, when the shelves are full again? Are we going to be able to immediately change back to an abundance mentality like we were before? Yeah, maybe not right off. Maybe we're still going to be hoarding toilet paper for a while. Maybe we're still going to have that, that stash because, man, if it happened once, it can happen again, right? Jesus is trying to tell us that there is a tap that is turned on in God's presence and God's love that can never be turned off. It is always on. But you need to see the world through different eyes. And when you can do that, and you can start to see that water falls from the skies, that God falls from the skies, God's presence is in every rock, everything starts to change. If we can adjust our lives, we can avert this tragedy, this tragedy that he's talking about. We can make sure that we don't miss the hour of our, veg- of our visitation. And when is that? When is this hour of our visitation? The truth of the matter is that every day is Palm Sunday. The truth of the matter is that every moment is Palm Sunday because every moment Jesus is writing into our lives. The question is, will we see him or not? Will we be present to him or not? Will we recognize and even accept 
the person that is writing in as the face of our God. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She says, I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day. I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world, to be contemplative in the heart of the world, seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor, Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. It's up to us to see, not for God to show. It's up to us to see because God is already and always showing. There is never a time that he's not. The rocks are singing. God can't do any more to show us who he is and the nature of our relationship with him than what is already happening and has always been happening since the beginning of time. And when we can begin to see Jesus in that nearest face, in every face, whatever face is coming at us, whether in the grocery store or at home, coming around the hallway, then, as Thomas Merton says, we can join the general dance who can actually move into the celebration and start playing in the symphony. And we will begin to hear the rocks singing. We will begin to feel the water that is falling from the sky. And we will avert this tragedy of missing the hour of our visitation. And we can enter a new track, a new path that doesn't lead to our destruction because we have, will have begun to see the things that really make for peace. We will have broken through the fear of our own need, broken through the confines of our own ego, and have seen a there there that is green and verdant and abundant. And we will have begun this Holy Week journey that will take us to the new life of Easter. This is what Palm Sunday is about. This is the first step on the journey that leads us to new life. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for liturgy. Thank you for centuries, millennia of church tradition that points to these deep and evergreen truths that each one of us is living through whether we realize it or not. Help us to pay attention to the symbols. Help us pay attention to the traditions that point to the truth of your word in ways that maybe we didn't get from just reading the book. But this tradition that bleeds over into our lives and allows us to participate in a physical way, in a collective way, can take us somewhere we really need to go with you, Lord. So help us as a people, help us as individuals, help us as families within our individual homes to find these breakthrough points, to find these balance points, to take more seriously what it means 
to really be people who follow you in faith. And as this crisis continues, as the, the, the fear and the anxiety continues to ramp up, that we can be more and more aware of who we really are in you and what's really important in life so that we can be equal to the challenge of being a blessing to everyone around us. Someone who unites and holds together and keeps spirits up and encourages. And even when we're afraid, find the ability to continue to follow that path and allow others then to buoy us up in that give and take that is our human relationships. Father, thank you for everything that you have done for us. Thank you for being with us right now in this time. And thank you for allowing us to continue to gather in whatever form is available to us. And we love you, Lord. Never let us forget. It's only because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, everyone, this is your chance to speak back to the screen. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess we got to talk about that, too. Um, it's so interesting. When this thing began three weeks ago, I still was holding out hope that we were going to be able to be open for Good Friday and Easter. <laughs> Silly wabbit, right? Um, so we are reinventing Good Friday and Easter. We will have those services at the same times we normally do, but of course they're going to be streamed online. So 7 o'clock this Friday for Good Friday service, and then 10 a.m., Sunday morning for Easter service. And what we're asking you to do, because we're going to have communion both of those times, is to prepare a little table for yourself. Prepare a table that's got bread and it's got grape juice or wine. See, you can even have wine if you want to, if that's okay with y'all. Um, wine, grape juice, and on Good Friday, uh, also a slip of paper and a pen or pencil for everyone in the family um, because we are still going to write down the cares and concerns that we normally would nail physically to the cross, but you can put them someplace special in your house. Create your own tradition for how you want to handle this, and we will have communion together, but we need to have the elements there. So if you prepare that table, and then on Easter, same thing. We'll have communion again, but also maybe some fresh-cut flowers that we would normally decorate the cross with, but you can put someplace again special in your home to commemorate the new life that is taking place. So that's Friday at 7 p.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Good Friday and Easter. There'll be a lot more information coming to you over the week as we go through. And you'll be getting also those daily devotionals that will be really digging in, developing the ideas that we briefly went through here about each day of Holy Week and how they are really taking us on this journey. So I hope that you will connect there and connect with us. And of course, you can see us on Tuesday night at 6 6.30 and Wednesday night at 6.30 as well, and we'll stay as connected as we can be. And I think that's all she wrote. All right. Everyone, completely enjoy the rest of your Palm Sunday. Be connected with your family and connected with God. And if you would all just kind of metaphorically take hands with one another, whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. See you very soon.